Uh, yesterday, I took my boys to the first session of their Learn to Play Hockey program. And it was quite a sight. Had over 50 kids all sprawled out all over the ice there. Many, many of whom was their very first time on the ice. Yet whether these kids had skated before or not, you know what they all wanted to do the moment they got on the ice? The very first thing they all wanted to do was they wanted to get the puck and score. In fact, uh, that's what all beginning hockey players want. They, they want the thrill. They want the adrenaline rush. They want, we could even say, the glory of skating with the puck down the ice and scoring on a goalie. But you know what? No pucks were used in that first session. No, you know what the very first thing, what's the very first thing they teach beginning hockey players? The very first thing. They teach them how to fall down and get back up. In fact, the majority of that first session was spent with the players laying down on the ice. You see, there's a pattern that every hockey player must follow if they're going to play the game correctly. And you know what that pattern is? Simply put, it's this. The pattern is difficulty first, glory later. Learn to fall down and get up first. Then learn how to score later. Difficulty first, glory later. However, the ice rink isn't the only place we see this pattern taught. No, Scripture teaches the same thing in regards to the life of God's people. Consider for a moment the nation of Israel. Tell me, Faith, where did Israel spend a considerable amount of time after they left Egypt, but before they went into the promised land. Where did they spend a considerable amount of time? In the wilderness, in the desert. Hardship, suffering, difficulty first, glory, promised land later. Or consider the life of David. We've mentioned before, in fact, last week, how David's life in many ways mirrors and reflects the major movements of the nation of Israel in their life. Like Israel of old, we're learning that David has just escaped another Pharaoh-type figure in Saul, right? And now, as we've been looking the last couple weeks, David has entered into a wilderness period. He's suffering. He's experiencing hardship. As we talked about last week, he's arguing the lowest point of his life. And like when Israel was in the wilderness, what does David receive to eat while he is in the wilderness? Remember, we looked at this last week. He receives bread from what structure? The tabernacle. The tabernacle, which is an architectural representation of heaven. So just like Israel of old, David too, while in the wilderness, he's receiving bread, if you will, from heaven. 
before David comes to the promised land and begins to rule, he must suffer. Suffering hardship now, glory later. Indeed, David's life is a pattern that is fulfilled in Jesus, is it not? Like David, Jesus was opposed by the established rulers of Israel. Like David, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In fact, I believe, and I want to argue that I think that Jesus used David as proof that he himself had to suffer. For what does Jesus say to his disciples in Luke 24? Remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says to the disciples that Jesus himself, he had to suffer. And he says, you should have known that the Messiah had to suffer. And when Jesus began to teach them from the prophets, remember he has a little Bible study there and he opens up the Old Testament and from all the major sections of scripture, he shows the disciples how there's teachings concerning him. I have no doubt that when Jesus got to the prophets, he brought them to 1 Samuel in order to show them that just as David suffered, so too David's son must suffer. Suffering now, glory later. And here's what I want you to see, Faith. It's really important. As Christians, this is a pattern we follow as well. Christian, we are sojourners on this earth. We are not in the promised land, are we? No, we are in the wilderness, which means as we sojourn, as we make our way to the celestial city, as we make our way to the promised land, we will, not might, we will experience hardships. We will suffer. We will touch thorns and thistles and our feet will get dirty and we'll get bruised. We're in the wilderness now. So here's the question I want us to consider, okay? Actually, two questions. The first is this. Number one, how self-evident is this point? <laughs> I mean, who here hasn't experienced difficulty? Who here doesn't know what it means to suffer or to know hardship? In fact, you don't have to say it out loud. But in what way are you currently experiencing some difficulty or hardship? What trial are you going through? How are you suffering some kind of loss? Is your life marked by hardship right now? Relationally, at work? However it might be, is your life marked by hardship right now? If so, friend, please hear me. Don't be surprised. Rather, please know, Christian, that you are walking in the same steps as your Savior and the entirety of God's people before you. 
you are in line with the God-ordained pattern for Israel, for David, for Jesus, and for Jesus' followers, which is suffering, hardship now, glory later. So here's the question I want us to consider. And that is, in light of this God-ordained pattern, the question I want us to consider is, how can we persevere? How can we persevere while in the wilderness? How can we thrive amidst hardships and difficulties? Well, I believe our passage this morning gives us excellent counsel on how to do that. Our, our study of 1 Samuel, it, it leads us just to the first two verses of chapter 22, and I'm going to throw the verses up there on the screen. You'll recall in the previous section, uh, David, he strolled into Goliath's hometown of Gath, and he just didn't show up in Gath by himself, but he had with him Goliath's sword, the very sword that he used to lop off Goliath's head. And David is so desperate, he's fleeing from Saul, that he finds it more safe to go to Goliath's hometown than to stay in Israel. Remember, he, he acted like a crazy man, and King Achish was like, you know, do I not have enough of these guys? <laughs> so now we read what happened next, where David goes. Here's his next move. Follow along with me as I, as I read this up on the screen. The first two verses of 1 Samuel 22. David departed there, that would be Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter and soul, meaning people who are experiencing hardship, people who are going through the wilderness, and I need to say, the, these people, the reason why they're experiencing hard times is because of King Saul. So everyone who's having a hard time, they gather to him, David. And he became the commander over them. And you need to understand, though David is in a cave, don't think of it as a very small enclosure. It probably would have been something about this size. A big cave. And there were with him about 400 men. So David, as we talked about last week, we're reading uh, what is arguably the lowest point in his life because of what Saul has done. David has lost his house, his wife, his reputation's taking a beating. He's fleeing for his life, and now he's in a cave. And you know what David did while he was in this cave? He wrote Psalm 57. Just like David wrote Psalm 56 when he was in Gath, seized by the Philistines. And faith in Psalm 57, I believe David provides excellent counsel for how we, those who follow this pattern of suffering now, glory later, those of us who are in the wilderness, he shows us how we can persevere amidst hardships. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 57. And follow along with me as I read this text. David writes this while in the cave 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes this. He says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Now here's his description. He's using metaphors to describe the men who are pursuing to kill him. He says, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amidst fiery beasts, the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bound down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen and amen. This is God's word. The police in Oregon are still looking for a man who in January, they say, stole a car with a child in the back seat only to return the four-year-old and reprimand the mom about her parenting. True story. According to the Associated Press, local authorities said the theft took place outside a grocery store when the mom left the car running with the child in the back seat. The mother left the car unlocked and went inside to buy a gallon of milk. The thief happened to walk by and hopped in the car. He soon realized the four-year-old was in the back seat and pulled back into the parking lot, returning the child to the mother, but not without scolding her. Police spokesman Matt Henderson said, quote, he actually lectured the mother for leaving the child in the car and threatened to call the police on her. <laughs> Obviously, we're thankful he brought the little one back. The thief ordered the mom to take the child before driving off in the car. Crazy story, isn't it? And, and I think 
I think what makes it, I mean, there's a lot of bizarre elements to it, but I think what makes it most bizarre is that a thief would have any concern for morals. Threatening to call the police on the mom? His concern for that mother's parenting, it seems out of place, doesn't it? Wouldn't you agree? Well, we get a similar sense when we read Psalm 57. Not that David is committing a crime, but rather there are some elements to this psalm that seem just out of place, somewhat bizarre. Namely, David's statements in verse 5 and 11. His exuberant statements of praise. Remember, David's in a cave. He's running for his life. He's at the lowest point in his life. And while in the cave, he writes these exuberant statements of praise and they seem out of place. But you know what, faith? They're not out of place. Rather, they've been included in Holy Scripture in order to teach us how to persevere in the wilderness. And you know what the answer is, how we persevere in the wilderness? It's simply this. Seek God's honor in your suffering. You want to persevere amidst hardships? You want to persevere as you're walking through the wilderness on your way to the celestial city? I believe this psalm is teaching us what we are to seek and it's not relief, and it's not better circumstances. It's first and primarily to seek God's honor, to glorify Him. This, I believe, is what David is counseling us with through the example of how he's responding in, in this psalm. Notice, while in the cave, Dave wrote this psalm. And what this psalm, I want to argue, makes abundantly clear, you cannot ignore it, is that David's greatest concern is that God would be honored. Notice, twice David says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Notice David's chief concern is not himself. It is God's honor. It's to see his name exalted among the nations. And faith, please hear me very carefully. And I'm going to argue that seeking God's honor is the way we persevere amidst hardships. The way we persevere in the wilderness is not by making relief our greatest concern. No, it's by making God's honor our chief and greatest concern. And I must confess to you, they say confession is good for the soul, so here goes. I must confess to you, I was deeply convicted by this. How often, as I was reflecting on this week, how often whenever I experience the thorns and thistles of the wilderness, my attention, I say, that, I say this to my shame, my attention is purely on relief from my difficult circumstances. Now, relief is not bad, please hear me, 
But oftentimes, and again, I say this to my shame, in the hardship, in the suffering, glorifying God or seeking his honor is nowhere on my radar. Yet it was for David. Verse 5 and verse 11 make that abundantly clear. And in those moments when by God's grace and God's spirit, where God's spirit aligns my desires with scriptures and God's glory is my chief concern, friend, I, I can tell you this from experience, please hear me. There is a joy in the wilderness and a deliverance. Not a deliverance from my circumstances, but a deliverance from my indwelling sin. And that is far more valuable and precious than relief from difficult circumstances. Seek God's honor in your suffering. So what does that practically mean? Well, I believe this psalm shows us. And there's just several things I just want to, there's a lot we could draw out from this psalm, but there's just several things in particular I want to draw your attention to. And the first is this. You seek God's honor in your suffering when you first, you take refuge in him. Notice how the psalm begins, verse 1. He says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. The first way we honor God in our suffering is by taking refuge in him. Not too long ago, my sons found the body of a mole in our front yard. It was just laying there. They ran in and said, Dad, we found this mole. They didn't know if it was dead or alive, so you know what they did? They poked it with a stick, <laughs> like all good boys should do. And you know what the mole did? Nothing. Why? Because it was dead. In fact, that's how you know if something is dead, isn't it? Dead things do not curl up or turn away when pierced with pain. Instead, all living things, when they are poked, when they are pierced with pain, they turn. If you're alive, <laughs> everyone's first reaction to pain is to turn. Faith, as your pastor, I know that some of you right now are being pierced with pain. In fact, all of us in this wilderness experience are experiencing some kind of hardship on some kind of level. You're being jabbed with some kind of affliction, some kind of hardship, some kind of difficulty. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, where are we turning to? Because if you are alive, you are not might, you are turning to something. Are you turning to alcohol? 
Are you turning to food in your pain and distress? Are you turning to Netflix? Men, are you turning to your work? There's there's pain at home, so you drown, you, you ignore it by just giving your time to the office. Faith to seek God's honor in our pain is to take refuge in him. That is, you turn towards God when sorrow tempts you to run from him. Notice, David may be in a cave, but he's taking refuge in the Lord. And faith, such actions honor God. It honors me when my sons or daughters, who when they get injured, they run to me for help. That doesn't dishonor me, that honors me. They're hurt, they're in pain, so what? Who can help them? The first person, they go go to their dad. That's honoring to me. Christian, as a son and daughter of the Most High God, when you're going through the wilderness and the rose bush cuts your leg or you're poked or you're experiencing some pain in the wilderness, it honors our God to turn to him, to take refuge in him. To take refuge in God is to believe who God says he is. Namely, merciful and compassionate, as David says here in verse 1. It's to bring your concerns and burdens to the Lord instead of turning away from him. So the application question here is, who or what are you taking refuge in while suffering? Don't let it be the bottle and don't let it be the black box. Friend, anything other than the Lord is a broken cistern. It will not satisfy. But then second, we learn that to seek God's honor in your suffering means you trust his purposes. Notice what David says in verse 2. He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. So the first thing is we take refuge in God, but then we have to trust God's purpose for us in the hardship. And now that spring is here, my wife is actively gardening again. And uh, the other day she shared something very interesting with me about the seedlings that she's growing in our home. Here's a picture of them. Now, funny little story, and this is for free. Um, When she first got these little seedlings, they're just these small little brown little cubes. And and my wife put them in an old Entenmann's um, container. You know what I'm talking about, Entenmann's coffee? And she put them on the counter. And the other day, I was walking, I'm like, oh, look at these, these delicious small little brownies out here on. But then as I was getting a little closer, I saw these green stuff poking up, so... I didn't eat any of them, but I did have almost a moment of confusion, okay? Well, now they're kind of growing a little bit more. Here's, here's what my wife discovered. After doing some research, she learned that she needs to artificially provide 
adverse conditions by blowing a fan on these seedlings. She has these in her house, but she needs to provide adverse conditions by blowing a fan on these seedlings. And you know why? Because if she doesn't, the plants will be weak, stunted, and they will have a diminished yield. Think about that for a moment. The still, calm environment of the indoors prevents optimal growth. In other words, adverse conditions are what bring about healthy, vibrant plants. Faith Community Church, God is not silent concerning his purposes for allowing suffering and trials in your life. You know what his purpose is? It's that you would not have a diminished yield. What does is, what is Peter write in 1 Peter 1? Remember the first couple of verses of 1 Peter talk about how we are sojourners on this earth. And then Peter writes this. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You're grieved as you're going through the wilderness. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or consider James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials of various kinds is the largest, most broad category James could use to say any kind of difficulty, any kind of suffering or difficulty you're experiencing in the wilderness, he says, count it all joys. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Let the fan blow a little longer. Let it blow a little longer on the seedlings. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Faith, David believed God would fulfill his purpose for him while in the cave. Now, part of that, as we soon are going to discover, was deliverance from his adversaries. But that wasn't all the purposes God had. No, the clear teaching of Scripture is that God brings us into the wilderness. He allows trials and difficulties to refine our faith. Now, will we also be delivered from our adversaries and relieved from the difficult circumstances we're experiencing? Ultimately, yes. However, it might not be until we're with God in glory. Yet one thing we can be certain of is that whatever hardship we are currently experiencing, God's purpose is to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
when you feel the breeze of the fan blowing on you, when your feet get dirty as you're walking in the wilderness, as you're experiencing hardship, know God has a purpose for this pattern of suffering now glory later, and that's to refine your faith. So Christian, here's the application question. How do you view hardship? It's a question I've been asking myself this week. Are you allowing it to complete its work in you? Faith, trusting God's purpose for your suffering, it honors him. It glorifies God when you say, Lord, I don't know every reason why you allowed me to get in this car accident. I don't know why you allowed me to lose my job. I don't know why you allowed me to get COVID. I don't know why you allowed fill in the blank of any trial of various kind. But it honors God when you say, God, I don't know the reason why you allowed this hardship in my life, but what I do know is that you sent it for my good, that you would deliver me from my sin and make me more like your son. So Lord, please help me by your spirit to let this trial perfect my faith. Christian, that prayer honors God. And it opens the doorway for him and his transforming grace to be at work in whatever difficult circumstance you might find. Then third, David counsels us that in our suffering, we need to tune our hearts to sing his praise. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. Tune your hearts to sing his praise. I don't know if you noticed this or not. I'd be surprised if you did. You'd get a gold sticker for observational skills, but I don't know if you noticed, but Ben keeps a small device on the top of his bass guitar. It's there every Sunday. You know what this is? Well, you know. <laughs> of course. I want them to know. As Ben said... It's a tuner. <laughs> and you know why Ben has this tuner there? It's so he can see in real time if his bass is becoming out of tune. Because here's the deal with bass guitars and all instruments for that matter, and that is they don't tune themselves. In fact, more than anything, they often get out of tune, don't they? which means they require constant adjustment. Faith, our hearts need constant tuning as well. Tuning to, like David, to sing God's praise 
while in the cave. He's not singing in the rain. He's singing in the cave. That phrase there in verse 8, when David says, my glory, that refers to his whole person. Perhaps that's what some of your versions have. The whole being. Notice, David's glory, his whole being, gives the right response to God's glory. And keep in mind, David wrote this while in a cave. Ben has to adjust and tweak and fine-tune his bass regularly if it's going to play well. Christian, if we're going to follow and persevere amidst hardships, we must tune our hearts. We must make adjustments to our hearts to sing God's praise. And if I could ask, when was the last time you did that? When was the last time, like David, you spoke truth about God, his character to your heart, so that God's character, his glory, was greater in your heart and mind than whatever difficulty you're going through so that you could sing his praise? When was the last time you told your glory, your whole person, to rise up and praise God? Faith, God is worthy of our praise and worship. Whether we are sipping sweet teas in the sun with waves lapping on our feet or we are in a dark, dank cave. In all circumstances, God is worthy of our praise. Amen? Let us seek his honor by giving him such praise that he is owed. And then lastly, I want to draw your attention is that to seek God's honor when suffering means that we tell others of his glory. Look at how the psalm ends, verses 9 through 11. It says, I will give thanks to you, O God, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Do you see again, friend, how David is consumed, not with his circumstances, but with God and his glory? This is why I say, and I believe, if we're following the counsel and model and example of David, is that in the cave, while in the wilderness, the way we persevere is to seek God's honor in our suffering. I mean, just notice how God-focused David is. Is he aware of his hardship? Yes. Is he consumed by his hardship? No. He's consumed with God and his glory and his exaltation. So much so, notice he can't help but tell others about it. It's like, it's like when you taste a delicious dessert and you can't help but tell others how good it is. David can't help but declare God's glory among the nations. And by way of application, Christian, I want to encourage us as a church, don't allow this wilderness period, don't allow hardships to prevent you from evangelism. You honor God in your suffering when you declare his glory to others. 
in fact, liked eating the dessert and telling others about it. Let us be faithful to invite others to taste and see that God is good. You know what makes God look great? Not simply praising him and telling others and delighting in him when everything's going our way, but when it's obvious to those around us that we are experiencing a hardship and we're still tuning our hearts to sing his praise and telling others how good our God is because he is. So I want to encourage us to invite people to come and see, to taste and see. For we have the greatest news to share, don't we? The good news that Christ died to save sinners. Sinners like me, sinners like you. Friend, our greatest problem is that we stand condemned before a holy God for our sin. Yet God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect, sinless life we have failed to live, then die the death we are owed for our sin. On the cross, Jesus received the punishment we deserved. Yet whereas David simply hid in a cave, Jesus was buried in one. Yet he didn't remain there, did he? Now three days later, Christ rose from the grave defeating sin and death, proving himself who he claimed to be, the son of the most high God. And here's the incredible thing. The offer of the gospel is that through faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven, Christ's righteousness is credited to our account, we are adopted as sons and daughters, and we have the hope of eternal life forever with the Lord, and God's spirit resides with us and is with us, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen. How is this bad news? How? Tell me. What's bad about this that would prevent us from telling it to others? To tell others, you know what? The best you're experiencing in this life is the closest you'll ever get to heaven. But friend, I have good news for you. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. And you can have the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. What is bad about that? And why wouldn't we want to tell others to invite them to taste and see that the Lord is good? My prayer for us as a church is that we would be faithful to share this good news with others even while we're going through the wilderness sojourning, making our way to the celestial city. Amen? Let's pray.